Do you ever get the feeling that you want to be somewhere else, but you don't know where that is? You may even feel like you're supposed to be somewhere else, but you you can't find it. You don't know where it is. Even the most hardcore homebody couch potato gets unsettling feelings along these lines sometimes. It might just be watching a travel show on TV for the couch potato, or it might be looking at a picture of paradise in a magazine, but there's just this sense, I want to be somewhere else. And then there's those agitated souls. They don't get that feeling once in a while. It's all the time. They just always want to be elsewhere. Where do you fall on the spectrum? We're all a bit different, and but wherever you fall on that spectrum, there is something of the wanderer in each one of us. From birth, there's this sense that we're to be somewhere. We're looking for this place. We're looking for this rest, in a sense. Deeply embedded in our souls is this sense that there exists a place of rest in this world. And we're not there yet. And so the question echoes through our souls, where do I belong? Where is my rest? Where is my home? In one sense, the entire Bible is a historical record that points wandering souls home. It teaches us where that place is. The Bible reveals that the reason we feel that we might belong somewhere else, the reason for that feeling is that we do belong somewhere else. The story begins with God's creation of Adam and Eve, whom he places in the Garden of Eden. And when we hear that word place, the Hebrew word is actually he rests them there. He rests them in the Garden of Eden. He places them where they belong, where He has designed for them. Eden was paradise because it was a place of natural beauty. It was paradise because it was a place free from sin, but it was also paradise because God was there. And Adam and Eve walked in the presence of God and fellowship with God and knew God. That's why it was home for them. But Adam and Eve as we know, chose to disobey God's will. They chose to do things their own way, for their own glory, and their relationship with God was fractured. And the world was cursed. Physically and relationally, everything became twisted and subject to futility and hopelessness. Everything. But God immediately started a rescue operation to deliver us from that curse and to bring us back where we belong in His presence. The problem was that sin separated us in an amazingly difficult-to-conceive way and with great distance. And this project of bringing unholy, sinful people back into the presence of God is going to take a long, long time. But the plan started right away in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Soon after the fall, immediately after the fall, God promises in Genesis 3.15 to end this curse. To bring a deliverer who will crush Satan's head and to reverse all that has gone wrong. 
And he begins a slow process there in Genesis 3 to guide us home, to guide us back into his presence. Now, in these earliest chapters of Genesis, as we've been looking at this through several weeks now, there are two basic responses to God's rescue mission. The first we've defined is the city of man. Cain's city represents that approach. Remember, he in, in his murder of Abel, who is worshiping God on his terms and seeking to walk in the presence of God according to his directive, Cain murders Abel in jealousy and in... In fact, in persecution. But what does he do? Cain then goes east of Eden and he builds a city. He builds a city which he names after his son, in a sense, after himself. And there the city prospers, but it prospers, we're to understand, in defiance of God. And Lamech in that in those first chapters raises his fist and declares his independence from God his arrogance i will take care of myself i will crush my enemies and he speaks for the city we're big people and we don't need god we came to genesis chapter 11 in the tower of babel in this ziggurat this this ancient tower built to create a landing place for the gods and to reach into heaven and say we'll do worship we'll do religion on our terms but we will do it for whose name for our name for our glory and the city of Cain now the city of Babel raises its fist to God and stands in arrogant pride saying look at us look at our big towers look at our big cities we don't need God There's a technological component to all of it as the city develops in opposition to God. We don't need Him. We have our technology. We don't need Him. We have the way for society to develop. And it's not the name of God we need to be concerned about. It's the name of man. There was a second approach. And that was what we might call the city of God. The people who place their hope in God's promise of a deliverer to crush Satan's head and to eliminate the curse. And we find them in Genesis 4 and verse 26 gathering together for prayer. Not that they'd begun to pray as individuals for the first time, but they began to identify as those who sought God in prayer. We are coming before the Lord. In fact, we're coming into the presence of the Lord together. The world is not what it should be. The curse has not been lifted. But we are going to lift our prayers in hope and dependence upon the promises of God. And the Bible traces this line. In fact, God is not standing back impressed with them. But He welcomes this city of God. These people who long for His city and for His rule And he points to them and says, watch this line of people. And he begins to lay out names that will work their way toward the deliverer that he has promised. And we read this earlier this morning, but in Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abram and everything narrows down now to this narrow channel of Abram and his family. God, in a sense, placing along the sides of this channel blinking lights that say, watch this family. Abram, 
As he says in Genesis 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Be absolutely audacious and arrogant if Abram came up with that idea. In me, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's God who calls him, God who draws him out of Ur, really the continuing spirit of Babel there in the city of Ur, a pagan city, a pagan man. God calls him in his electing grace out of that city and says, through you, I will bless the nations. In His mercy then, God to us narrows it all down to this one individual, this one family, and says, watch this family. And so at great personal cost, at great personal risk, Abram obeys God and he journeys to the land of Canaan from Ur. In the land, Abram erects altars to God. We noted that in chapter 12 and verse 8. And does so at one place called Beth-el, beth the Hebrew Baith house and El uh, for God, the house of God, the place of God's presence here in this land that God has promised to him. And he builds there an altar, not a ziggurat, not a city, not walls, but an altar. Keep that in view. We're going to journey through as we're working through this theme of the city uh, through the entire Bible at the, the current pace, we will finish somewhere in 2028. Uh, so we, we're, we're not going to do that, though, and aiming at uh, right at the end of this year, perhaps a week or two into the next, depending on how, how things play out here for us. But in that, we have to begin to skip, and we do that with chapter 12 and verse 10. Genesis 12 and verse 10. And remember that Abram goes down to Egypt there, and it wasn't a good journey. It was a journey where there was a lack of faith on Abram's part. He fails along a number of lines. There's famine in the land of promise, and his faith falters badly as he interacts with Pharaoh down in Egypt where he was seeking food and respite there from the problems in the land of Canaan. But he returns to the land that God promises to give him, a place from which Abram's offspring will bless the earth. There is no question at this point in the text of Genesis that Abram is not thinking, I can just sit down here in Egypt and from here bless the earth. The connection is to Abraham, but it's also a connection to this land. And so he comes back in faith to the land, and this brings us to chapter 13. And we find here, first of all, an earthy crisis in the land of promise. It doesn't seem to be a spiritual crisis, if you want to use that phrase, but a very earthy, common, normal conflict that takes place. Chapter 13, verse 1, Abram goes back from Egypt, so he's heading north and upward, back into the land. He and his wife, there's Sarai, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. That is into the southern portion of the promised land, toward the south. Abram's wife, Sarai, let's remember, is infertile. A point of tension with God's promise to give Abram an offspring that will bless the earth. She cannot have children. Lot is Abram's nephew who lived with Abram since the death of his father, Haran, Abram's brother. 
The band journeys north out of Egypt to the southern edge of the promised land. In verse 2 then, Abram was, we learn, he was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. As with the reference to Sarai and Lot, this is foreshadowing. Why mention that he's wealthy here? It's preparing us for what is to come. And he journeyed, verse 3, on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram's recent journey into Egypt was, as I mentioned, a disaster. In Egypt, he chose to rely upon his own wits. He was operating not as a man of faith and confidence in the promises of God, but he was operating as a man like any other man, not one of prayer, not one of seeking the purposes of God, but one of just being who was driven, frankly, by fear and weakness. His faith didn't come fully formed. He's demonstrated quite a bit of faith as he leaves his land of Ur and comes to this strange land. But there is much yet to learn for this man of faith as there is much to learn for all of us in our journey of faith. But the fact that Abram returns to Bethel is huge. It's not a small point here. He's coming back where? He's coming back to the place where on his first pass through the land he had built an altar at this house of God, at this place where he will meet with God and in God's presence in some sense through faith. So Abram has returned to the worship of the true God, Genesis 4.26, the people gathering to pray, and he's come back to the land here at the house of God to worship the Lord. He's home. He's home where God has placed him. He's again at rest. That's Abram. What about this Lot, this nephew of Abram? Verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, Here's the problem. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. That's what you call a good problem. You've got so much to deal with, you can't live together, but it's still a problem. And it's a problem that becomes more than merely logistical. It also devolves into a relational problem. Verse 7 Strife came between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Apparently, that note is just, they were also seeking pasture land. They were also seeking watering places for their flocks. And it's just gotten too tight here. Well, the tension between those who handled Abram's flocks and those who handled Lot's flocks became very, very difficult. At verse 8 then, we read of a peaceful resolution through the man of faith. That is, it is channeled through Abram as he peacefully works out a resolution here in the land. We note this in verse 8. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. He takes leadership in his family. He puts family loyalty above material profit. A simple principle that would help a lot of families get along better. Family before material profit. 
No arguing over the inheritance. No fighting for rights. Saying, listen, we're family. Let's work this out. Verse 9, he says to Lot, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Sounds so simple. This is amazing grace. It is hard for us in our democratic Western mindset to perceive the significance of this move. This is a patriarchal society. Abram would have had every right to tell Lot where to go. In fact, many would argue, culturally speaking, he had a duty to tell Lot where to go. Abram is really coloring outside of the lines here in grace. This is, what you're looking at here, the epitome of what the Bible calls meekness. Meekness is never weakness in the Bible. It is in our culture, it's misunderstood, and meekness is not put on anybody's resume. I've done all these things in business, I've accomplished all these things, and I'm a meek leader. I mean, your your interview's done. Nobody even knows what that means. This is meekness. This is a position of power and authority stepping down to say to the one who is weaker, I will defer to you. Meekness is displayed when a stronger, superior person shows strength of character by deferring to the inferior person or the weaker person or the person of less status. That's what Abram does. And there's a principle here. A person who trusts God has greater opportunity to defer to others and to treat them with generosity. When I trust myself, when everything's a chess match to get as much for myself as I can get, then all kinds of things get set aside and all kinds of people get trampled on so that I get all that I can. But when we trust God, we have a freedom to treat people with generosity and to leave the rest with the Lord. Consumerism programs us to get all we can. Capitalism teaches us to compete and to secure the best financial place. And I'm not trying to work out all of the complicating issues with consumerism and with capitalism. I just mean to say this. People who trust the promises of God are freed to lay rights aside and to defer to others. In a Christian home, one of our sons carrying in furniture, which was his job for a year, saw this phrase in a very impoverished home that was nonetheless handled very cleanly and carefully. A neat place, but an impoverished place. There was a plaque on the wall that said this. Living with less that others might have more. Living with less that others might have more. If that's really 
the mantra. That's really the principle we follow. It's because there's faith in God who provides. Abram puts himself in this place. No one in his culture would expect this. No one in his clan or family would expect this. They might even not be happy with him giving Lot this freedom. But Abram acts here not only as a generous man, but as a peacemaker. I wonder if this scene ran through Jesus' mind when He said, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek, for they will what? Inherit the earth. Stay tuned. Verse 10. Coming back to Lot, he lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. Everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That that is like the garden of Eden in a sense. We come back to another Eden here in the promised land. Like the land of Egypt was another comparison in the direction of Zohar. Then this ominous parenthetical statement. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That is anybody reading this text would not get this because that area was desolate. It had been destroyed by God, I think, through natural disasters, God using natural means, perhaps miraculous means. We don't know exactly all of the nuances of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but once it was destroyed, it was a barren wasteland. But in this day, it was a beautiful, fertile place. And Lot looks at that place and he says, I want that. I like the looks of it. So Abram, laying this out for Lot, Lot looks to the southeast from where they stand and sees this beautifully lush area and these cities also of man's kingdom, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he makes his choice. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Now that should catch our attention. He journeyed eastward. There's a theme that's been working through the text to this point about that, that draws us to the idea of direction. He journeys east, and thus they separated from each other. What does that say in light of chapter 12? Those who bless you, I will bless. Link yourself to Abram, the man of faith. But Lot says, I'm going to separate from him, and I'm going to move eastward. And so, verse 12, Abram, on his side, settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then again, this ominous note. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You see how it lays out. Lot makes the logical choice, but he also makes the selfish choice. More than anything else, however, he makes the faithless choice. He doesn't say, Abram, uncle, God has blessed you. He is working through you. He is working His salvation purposes through you. Direct me where you want me to go. Let's talk through this and not quarrel anymore. But let's work together. Lot says, no, I'm going to be wise on my own. I see the best place and I'm taking my possessions there. I'm taking my flocks where they can be fed and watered. This is the clear choice. He's giving me this option. I'm going to take it. I'm cashing it in. 
Lot's only consideration here is self-interest, nothing else. No faith, no God, no prayer. He just says, I'm not dumb. I know where to go. And he pitches his tent toward the city of Sodom. That's, that's not a positive note. When we think in context of Cain's city, and we think of Babel, and we think of Ur, and now we think of Sodom, this is in that same line, the city of man rising in its own strength in defiance of God. And Lot says, I'm going to cozy up to that city. I'm going to get close there where I can gain the benefits of what's happening in that city. And he walks away from the promised land. I think where he's at is still the promised land. But he's as far to the edge as he can be with his tent in the sights of Sodom. Why is that a problem? Verse 13 Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They're in defiance of God. In irony, he moves into the place that's like the Garden of Eden. But what it's really like is Babel. A place of defiance against the Lord. We come then in the third movement of the chapter to a promise confirmed to the man of faith, Abram. Verse 14, let me just say first before we move to that, uh, thinking of this eastward theme, we have Cain in Genesis 4.16 moving eastward and building a city. We have those who build Babel moving eastward from Ararat where the ark has landed and they build Babel. When we read here that Lot moves eastward towards Sodom, the text intends for us to make the connection there that he's not moving in a good direction. There's nothing evil about east, nothing particularly good about west when it's just directional. But in the theme of the book of Genesis, this is significant. It's just using that directional here motivation to help us understand what is happening. So this eastward movement is always a movement away from God, but Abram's movement is westward from Ur to the promised land. With that in view, a promise confirmed. Verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, underline that, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'm going to give you that Garden of Eden down there. It doesn't have a long future. It's not going to be pretty for long, but I'll give you that. I'll give you all that you see looking in all four directions. This is the land I have chosen for you. I have chosen here to work out my purposes in time. But please understand, this is more than giving Abram a nice place to live as a reward for the way that he made peace with Lot. God is up to something very big here. 
It involves land and it involves offspring. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. We're tracking it all here. We will have two ideas very clearly in view and that is God's promise of a place and God's promise of a people through Abram. Back to the land then in verse 17. He says, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. What's the walking back and forth here through it? Walke says it's a symbolic act constituting a mode of legal acquisition. So a letter comes to you today. You've got a relative you never knew existed. And in this letter, this relative has died and has left you 20 acres of pristine forest in Montana. And you say, well, that's nice, and throw it on the shelf and never think of it again. No, you're saying, how quick can I get to Montana? I want to see this place. I want to walk through these woods. And you get there and you're you're amazed and you're looking around and saying, where does this lead? And there's a little creek running through here and you're coming to know the land because you're taking possession of it. You want to see it. That's all that's happening here. That's what Abraham's doing. He's, He's been sojourning. Now he walks up and down through the land, passing through and viewing it all as God's gift to him and to his people. He's never going to own anything here but a place of burial himself. But in faith, he trusts God's promise that in God's time, this place will be his. This was his rest. This was the place he'd always been seeking. He was 75 when he left Ur, but here it is. God revealing to him, this is the place. This is your rest. Much like he rested Adam and Eve in Eden, he now rests Abram in Canaan. The divine agenda was moving forward. How could fallen man relate with God in a place? It's no accident that the author inserts verse 18 right here at the end of the narrative. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, which he built And there he built an altar to the Lord. Another altar at which to offer sacrifices in worship of the true God. The builders at Babel sought to proclaim the glory of their own name in worship of their own making. Abram raises an altar at which to proclaim the greatness of God on God's terms. As God had made it clear to Abel, this is how you worship me. So... Abram in that stream is setting up an altar here at this place to worship the Lord. No towers, no buildings. A simple place of sacrifice in the land that God had marked out as the stage on which he would continue to work out his saving purposes. Right here. It's a nice story, isn't it? You might say, well, and it, it is. I'll, I'll give it to you. This is an interesting story. It's really got nothing to do with me. Two guys, their little dispute, they got over it. God gives this man this land. I live here, 21st century, United States, Minnesota. What's it got to do with me? If you listen closely, the wanderer in you may well detect that this has everything to do with you. 
In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, we've read a couple of times here this morning that God proposes to bless the nations through this man located in this place. And so in this narrative, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. It's not about these two ancient men alone. It's about you. It's about me. It is the early brush strokes of God's grand design to regather the scattered nations to himself. We're to understand in Genesis 11 that in judgment God scatters people. The whole idea of Eden was to draw them to him in his presence. That's where our joy comes from. That's where our strength is. We were made to commune with God. But he scatters them in judgment. God is here beginning the process of bringing them back to Him. To bring the nations to Him. To meet with Him. To commune with Him. And indeed, even in a place. By choosing and blessing Abram, God marks this small spit of land as the place at which He will work His saving purposes to draw the nations to Himself. Ezekiel saw this so clearly when in chapter 38 and verse 12 he calls this place, the center of the earth. It is the navel of the world. Look here. In this place, I will display my saving purposes. As the land is marked out by God in promise to Abram, Abram marks out the land, not by building a great city to his own name, but by raising up altars throughout the land. We think of this in light of Cain and his city. We think of this in light of the Titans in Genesis chapter 6. We think of this in light of Babel and in light of Ur. Rather than building a city for his own name, he builds up altars and worships God. In this land, in this place, altars are constructed as a place of true worship. What is God doing? He's fine-tuning His saving purposes. Now he's given and will fine-tune the sacrificial system over time. But even now, the point is that God had taught Adam and Eve that sinners must approach God on his terms. And one of those terms is that you can bring a sacrifice that will substitute for the death you deserve by violating the law of God. And Abram is following that sacrificial practice of a substitute taking his place in worship of God. It's simple. It will be developed further. But God is at work here. He's marking the land. He's slowly orchestrating events to lead even to a permanent place in this land of promise where a permanent altar will be erected. And at this place of sacrifice, God will regather the scattered nations to himself. And so there is a point in this for all of us. God is channeling the story to prove that this is his saving purpose and plan for the nations. Genesis 3.15, this promise of a deliverer. Genesis 12 and verse 3, this one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The rebellion of man's city led people eastward away from the presence of God. 
Cain moving east, Babel moving east from the ark, Lot moving east towards Sodom. But God calls Abram west to this land. This westward movement symbolizing the divine regathering of the nations in God's presence. And so what's happening here? Abram's altar building in the worship of the true God on God's terms is clearing the way for the ultimate place of worship in this land. One day a temple will be constructed here in Jerusalem, on the very site where Abram will one day offer the son of promise that is in time born. And on that very site, in that very place, a temple will be constructed. A son of promise born to Abram and to his infertile wife will here be offered to God. And so we think carefully of the offspring of this whole story. The son of Abram, of Shem, of Noah, of Seth, of Adam comes to this place. And in in a sense then, what Abram is doing is he's groping around with these altars for the place of offering. He's groping around in the darkness as he prays and seeks God for the ultimate place of worship, an altar, a place, that place eventually is constructed in Jerusalem as God leads His people to understand this is the place. And there in that place, a son of Abraham, Shem, Noah, Seth, Adam, Jesus of Nazareth comes into that place and says, this is a place of prayer for the nations. God is bringing them back. He's bringing them back into His presence. And it is this Jesus Christ, this teacher from Nazareth, this one who has come, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, now coming here to this place to teach and to be the Messiah who will deliver God's people from their sin. So, one day, all of these elements come together. The land, God marking it and saying, this is it. This is the navel of the universe. The land, the offspring, this offspring of Adam has come to this place. This altar here, at this temple mount in Israel. One day, then, through His ministry, Christ comes to Mount Moriah. And is sacrificed in the sinner's place as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What Abram's doing is just groping for the place. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just walking by faith and God is using this man of faith to erect an altar that ultimately stands in this place where God will meet with His people in a unique way. And here the ultimate sacrifice will be made. Not an animal, but the perfect Son of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The name that is above every name. The Son of Shem. That is the Son of Name. It's about a name. It's about the offspring. It's about here, the land. And it's about this altar of sacrifice. That's what God is doing. So God is saying to us at this very early stage, He's channeling us and saying, watch this place. 
see this man in this place and through him I will provide the promised deliverer to crush sin and to bring the souls of God's people to rest in God again. This is where our soul longs to be. And you may disagree with me. You may say, I got my own rest. I've got my own place. I'm just comfortable where I am. Be very careful here and be warned. With that attitude that I'll live by my own wits and I'll accomplish my own way and I'll run my own life, you are lining up with the spirit of Lot. You're separating yourself from the people of God who live by faith in the promises of God, not by their own wits to gain whatever they can in this world for the glory of of themselves. Don't align with Lot. Don't align with that way of thinking. It is dangerous. It is destructive. He's right now on the edge of the promised land with his tent open to the city of Sodom seeking the benefits of that city. Soon, Lot will be on the other side of the river. Soon he won't be in the promised land anymore. Living by his own wits, his life is destroyed. Identify with Abram, the man of faith, who lives by faith and lives for a city that is yet future to our day, but lives every day in every relationship as he's working through this life with a concentration on the fact that walking in the presence of God is my joy and my hope. And I'm going to walk with people that walk that way. There's a greater city than the cities we see here. There's a greater world and a final resting place in an eternal city. And Abram set the course there. I ask you, are you walking in that same path? Can you demonstrate that from your life, that you are reaping the blessings that God has poured out upon His people through the ministry of Abraham, through the offspring of Abraham, through this place and this story? If that is the case, then we are pilgrims. We are pilgrims journeying on to another city and another place, identifying as the people of God and finding in Him our soul's delight. There may be something stirring within you today that says, I am grasping some of this. I need more help. I want to understand it better. Maybe there's something stirring within you that says, though I don't understand it, one thing I am sure about, and that's that my soul is not home. I'm wandering. I'm lost. I'm not figuring life out on my own, and I realize how foolish it is to say that I can. There are people here that are not perfect people, They don't live sinless lives, but they've learned the joy of the life of faith. And we would love to point you there. It might be the person who brought you today and invited you. Perhaps you've come in and you're just here saying, I'm lost. I'm confused. There's a wandering in my soul and it's not come home. It's not come to find this rest. And you say, well, that's just a Christian take on it. How do I know this is right? One way we know that it's the path is how God has orchestrated it through the centuries, pointing us through this line, through this place, to say, after generation, after generation, after generation, 
This is the name by which we must be saved. And all we would do is not press you to that because we can't make you receive this truth, but we would just invite you as we have been invited to consider Jesus Christ crucified and risen as the Savior that God promised back in the garden when Adam and Eve fell and the Savior that will one day reign over all eternity in the presence of the Father and the Spirit and His people. We would invite you to come today and to seek the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for these sketches, these early foggy views of what you would do to save your people. But we're thankful because they steer us They help us to know that we're on the right track and not just making things up on the fly. You have been working through the centuries this saving plan. It's a beautiful plan. We bow before it in humility. We bow before you as our God, our creator, our sustainer. And we ask that you draw to yourself those who know not Christ as Savior. For those of us who do, we rejoice in the wonder of your saving plan. And as we continue to peel back the layers to understand it more and more deeply. We are awed each time. And we praise you. We feel humbled in the sight of such wonders and realize that we can only begin to probe them. But we rejoice as your people in your saving grace and ask that we might be more solid in our faith as we consider these truths. We thank you for what you've done through your spirit in our hearts today. And thank you in our Savior's name. Amen.